Hi, I'm Tzemach, and my guest today again is Sholem Aleichem. So a couple of uh, words about the framework of this uh, podcast. I'm actually uh, trying a third microphone because the way our podcast is set up is that Sholem Aleichem is calling from his telephone. And I, I, I always wanted to, when I set it up, I thought, so how I'm going to record it? And then I found out that if you use Zoom, you can call in Zoom, uh, like in a, into a conference from a telephone line. So Shalom Aleichem is calling from his telephone line, and I'm just the regular Zoom operator. But there's always some kind of imbalance in sound, and I, I don't do post-production. But uh, now I'm trying another microphone, because microphones that I tried before, they were too loud, or in, in most cases, and not loud enough. So hopefully this will be better. Although I'm not counting in it because I I ran this issue by uh, Zoom tech support and they, they couldn't help me. Nevertheless, okay, let's let's go into today's theme. So today we wanted to, because we posted a couple of letters from uh, uh, Schneerson sisters to Nacharifkin, uh, I think it was appropriate to speak about Rifkin family itself. Because uh, it's just, even though we spoke about this in previous podcasts, it seems to me like it's worthwhile to revisit it, particularly in one particular conflict, in one particular aspect. And that is the conflict or bad blood that was between Ramash and Rayatz's family. If you enumerate Rayatz's family, you will see that virtually all members of that family had reservation, reservations about Ramash being a rabbi. And so let's quickly just go through the names. Number one is Rayatz himself, who allegedly wrote a tzivor, a will, uh, naming Beregurari as the uh, next rabbi. Now, the story comes from Beregurari itself, so we have to take it in the quotation marks. But nevertheless, let's just put it aside. Then is Nechama Dina. And Nechama Dina, whose name is Farboten uh, in Chabad, per instructions from Lubavitcher Rebbe himself. Then, of course, is a Beregurari. We don't have to repeat the story of Beregurari, and we don't have to repeat the story of his mother, Hannah. Then it, it emerges that Raf Rifkin, Raf Rifkin, although he wasn't, technically member of this family, but he was virtual member of this family based on uh, his wife as well, as we described on this blog. He was very close, or maybe the closest man to Rashab and then to Rayatz. Then we have uh, Zalman Schneerson himself, although not a member of the family, but something was there. Something happened there to a point that both his son and son-in-law preferred to be with Bobov than with... I'm just going to throw it back to Sholem Aleichem and ask him to describe those issues. Number one, as far as the story of uh, Raf Rifkin is concerned, and they have very different versions of the story. I mean, on one hand, uh, there's some versions of it that somebody rung his bell, he came down the stairs and literally died. On the other extreme, the version that's more popular in Chabad itself, that some Bochrim is just playing around, put some bubble gum in his keyhole. So I'd like to just clear up where's the middle of this story, but also to discuss it in the context 
of a larger picture of sort of relationship between Rayat's family and Ramash, because there's this contradiction here. On one hand, Ramash, um, he saw his Nisius as a Nosidarenu is Rayat. He channels all his decisions through Rayat's, Askir Latzin going to his grave. Uh, he presents himself as nothing, as if he's just like a, a, a replacement of Rayat's in this world. On the other hand, you have a situation where you have the entire Rayat's family that had reservation of Rebbe being a Rebbe. Now, you can say that this famous saying that the family couldn't be Hasidim, but I think there's something more to it. And I'd like uh, Shalom Aleichem sort of enlighten us about this issue. Well, I mean, I think what you said is is correct. I mean, it seems that most of the Rayatsa's uh, entourage, as we would say, and family, uh, were not excited about the concept of Rabbi Menachem Schneerson uh, becoming the seventh Lubavitcher Rebbe. I mean, which is exactly what you said. I mean, I am not a psychiatrist, but it would seem that the Rebbe's trying to assume the identity of the Rayats and keeping on uh, being attached to him uh, seems to be a way uh, of a, a person who has a guilty conscience, that he himself, Menachem Schneerson, really shouldn't have been the Lubavitcher Rebbe, uh, for whatever reason. Maybe he wasn't named in the will. Maybe his background wasn't appropriate to be Lubavitcher Rebbe. Maybe the years he spent in Berlin and Paris, he behaved in uh, a manner, maybe, that uh, he himself knew that he shouldn't have been Lubavitcher Rebbe. And of course, I'm not accusing him of capital crimes, but uh, clearly, you know, uh, his father-in-law's letter to him, his father's letter to him saying that he should make sure to wear a kaput at the wedding is, is a very strange thing. It's very weird. Uh, and the fact that uh, even when the Nazis um, expelled him from Berlin or, or, or came to power, he didn't go back to Warsaw. Heschel, for example, went back to Warsaw. Uh, all right, Berlin, back to Warsaw. No, the Rebbe went further west. And, uh, you know, there was no going back. He had no interest in being with um, the Spana, uh, you know, which is what Mrs. Schneerson called the Hasidim. He had no interest in being in Warsaw, as I, I forgot where I wrote this recently. You know, he didn't, he wasn't interested in the Majitzer um, Hasidim singing in Warsaw. He wasn't interested in the Gera based hundreds of Gera but in Warsaw with thousands of teenagers and married men learning. This is not what he was interested in. He was interested in the movies. He was interested in theater. He was interested in new books. He was interested in listening to broadcasts from Italy and from Germany and the political situation. So, you know, he wasn't going back to Warsaw. So all of this... Um, May may be himself that he himself felt he wasn't the Roy, uh, yeah, to be the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So the interesting thing is that what you do is you assume the identity of your predecessor. You you are not the Lubavitcher Rebbe, but you are just the medium through which the the sixth Rebbe continues to be alive. In that way, you know you're not really the Lubavitcher Rebbe, but in fact you are. 
so all the people you mentioned, of course, it's true. I'll add another person and I, who was closer to the Rashab than Rifkin, and that's Rabianka Vlanda. And uh, Rabianka Vlanda was pretty vocal. He was the chief rabbi of B'nai Barak. Uh, Rabianka Vlanda was pretty vocal in his opposition to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, um, you know, to becoming Rebbe. He was pretty vocal. And, you know, I assume there were others, too, who, you know, quickly uh, saw the writing on the wall and changed their tune. Uh, they saw that Menachem Schneerson was going to become the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and uh, they changed their tune. There's no question about it. So I do believe what you said is correct. I can't tell you why. I don't know why. Uh, I did speak to Barry Gararia, you know, at length is a, is an understatement, and he never really explained to me why the family um, opposed the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Maybe it's because, as Barry once told me, that he, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, in the 1930s, was as religious then as Barry Gorari is now, meaning the 1980s. Uh, you know, it's an interesting statement because, you know, Contrary to what the Lubavitchers will tell you, Barry Gerari was an observant Jew, but he wasn't. His his halachic observance was not what a chassid supposedly is. And I presume if the Rebbe was really interested in Chol Yisrael, if he was really interested in in Cholok, uh, which is glat kosher, if he was really interested in walking around with two yarmulkes uh, under his hat, why why live in Berlin? Why live in Paris? These are, to use the Yiddish word, they're cities that are full of, of, of I don't know, what's the English word for oiskelasene? They're, they're the, the equivalent of Greenwich Village. They're the equivalent of living in San Francisco. These are not places a Hasidic Yid wants to live in. Now, if you think that the Zalmashnerson was there as a rabbi of, of, a, of, of a number of Polish-Russian shuls, so he had a job as a cleric. But the rebel was not a cleric. He was there voluntarily, you know. And even as far as university, if he wanted to go to university, there were universities that admitted lots of Jews in Switzerland. There were universities in Italy. But he Dafka wanted to go to Berlin and Paris because, as Barry Gerari said, it wasn't the university that attracted him to these places. The university, in my opinion, was just yeah, a but, camouflage. But, but as I said, at, at the time, at least in Berlin, everybody was in Berlin. Soloveitchik was in Berlin. Um, yeah, Agnon Soloveitchik was in Berlin. Zalman uh, Shazar was in Berlin. Everybody okay, was. Berlin was the capital of intellectual Europe okay. at the time. I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned that. Because Agnon at that time was not a religious Jew. Shazar wasn't religious. He became religious when he was an old man. Uh, he, he put on a Lithuanian yarmulke and became a Lubavitcher chassid. He was not religious. These, the Rabbi Salvechik made no, no uh, excuses. He was a misnagid. He was a, a modern person. His father sent him to gymnasium in, in Poland or wherever he went, not in Prujan, but I think he went to gymnasium in Warsaw. Rabbi Salvechik wasn't a chassid. Um, and the same thing is true with Rav Hutner. And the same thing was Rabbi Weinberg was the rector of the rabbinical seminary. These people weren't Hasidim. Heschel was, you know, his biographer, you know, uh, what's his name? Ed, uh, I can't remember his last name from Brandeis. 
Um, his biographer seems to claim, claim that Heschel was a devoutly religious Jew. Maybe he was, but he clearly was, was far, far removed from the world of regular Hasidim, of, of normative Hasidus. But the Lubavitcher Rebbe claimed, and they, they, the scholars claim, that he was a Hasid, in, in, to use the Hebrew, below Muvon Hamila, in the complete meaning of the word Hasid. And there's no other example like that. I mean, you're not going to find a Halberstam, you're not going to find a, uh, a, a Teitelbaum, you're not going to find the Gerebis family in Berlin, you're not going to find them. And if they were there, they were non-religious. But here's this man who, who, you know, the claim was made, you know, that he was 100% of a Hasidic Jew. He ran 10 miles for Chal of Israel, his wife did. Well, why run 10 miles for Chal of Israel in Paris? You can live in Warsaw, in Lodge, and, of course, then there's the mock of the potash, which uh, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back. If the Rayats was the Nasi Ador, the Nasi Doreno, why do you want to leave his Daladamas? Why do you want to leave his presence? You get married to his daughter? You would think that that would be the most opportune uh, moment to sit in his room, to sit with him, not leave his, his, his presence. No. Instead, he gets married to the Sido Reigns' daughter and runs to Berlin at the first opportunity, which was, what, 30 days later? I mean, come on. There's something, there's something there. This was a modern person, in my opinion, a man who was, had one foot in, in um, I don't know the right word is Haskola, but a, one foot in modernity, in the post-World World War I modern uh, modernity. And he still had one foot in the Hasidic world. Uh, but, you know, he had one foot in the modern world. And I think his mother-in-law and his brother-in-law and uh, Zalman Schneerson, who, as we spoke, you know, Zalman Schneerson was the exact opposite. Zalman Schneerson is a man whose father and mother pushed him to become modern, and Zalman resisted. He did not want to become modern. He rather wanted to, to move backwards. So I think all these people saw him for what he was, which is a modern guy. It's like Rabbi Yankov Landa said, what, you're going to make a student at the Sorbonne to be Lubavitcher Rebbe? Come on. You know, um, it is weird. It, it's weird. You know, as I always say, the PR, the Rebbe understood PR very well. And I say it's not even PR, it's propaganda, the big lie that if you repeat the big lie long enough and years after years, people start believing you. The Lubavitchers are repeating that the Lubavitcher Rebbe was the greatest rabbinic scholar in his time. Yeah, if you keep on repeating it 50 million times, after a while, unwillingly, it enters our consciousness. Who's to say that, that he's right? Maybe uh, a person who is unknown um, sitting in New York, uh, you know, uh, you know, right. Moshe Rosen was a great uh, Talmudist in, in Brownsville. Maybe he was the bigger, biggest Talmudic scholar. He didn't have a PR machine. Maybe, uh, you know, I don't know who. There's, there's hundreds of the, you know, as Rabbi Belkin once said, when the Russian Shiva said, why you were threatening to go on strike. Okay, so let them go on strike. All I'll do is walk around the various apartment buildings in Washington Heights and I can come up with 10 Rosh Yeshivas in two hours. You know, there are many Talmudists in New York. There are many, you know, but they didn't have PR machines. Okay, so uh, let's, uh, let's circle back to, um, just for a moment, because we've been talking about uh, Rav Rifkin 
Moshe Dov Rivkin, maybe we should just circle back to this conflict. Because in a way, yeah. I think, uh, what's the importance of this conflict? I, I think that there was a first time when Lubavitch Kanoim were deployed. And later on, we saw the same thing in much worse situation, of course, is uh, with Rabitzim Khan Gurari. So right. they're different, they're different versions of what actually happened to Rafrifkin, right. as I mentioned, right? So the some version says that he actually was literally killed, other version, but but one thing is not in doubt. The something was there that this attack followed. And if you know, in the context of this attack, right. you have to say that on one hand, he's the rebbe defending Kovad Atera and Talmidi Chachomim. On the other hand, he decides to attack the person who is the Talmud Chacham in Chabad, the person right. well, closest to the pre, to Rashab and Rayat. So how does those right. things? I mean, this is not even to mention the contradiction, the base contradiction that on the surface he appears um, to defend and fight for Mihu Yehudi. On the other hand, a few years later, he drops Mihu Yehudi like it's an old sock, you know. And there's no any there's a contra, there's a contradiction on top of contradiction. Well, I think that this whole story of Rifkin and what led up to it is basically a, a story of what the Lubavitcher was all about. And um, you know, there, there are two important things I think before the actual incident. And one is Miu Yehudi. The Rebbe for years had been screaming. Screaming. I attended many of these Fabranglins, and it was pitch quiet when he talked about Miu Yehudi. And he said that both Miu Yehudi, fixing the, the law of return to say that a Jew is only a Jew who converts according to Halacha, and giving back territories that were captured in the Six Day War, both of these things were Ma'akev de Geula. He said that a million times. They prevented the coming of Mashiach. It wasn't the fact that it should be fixed, the, the law should be fixed. No, he emphasized that these things prevented Moshiach's arrival. And he screamed, and he hollered, and he attacked people, if not by name, that was his little sly style. He thought he was getting by the laws of Lashon Hara, not attacking people by name, but clearly we knew, anyone knew who he was attacking. He was attacking Chief Rabbi Eisenberg of Vienna, bitterly. He bitterly attacked him. And then he bitterly attacked Dr. Yitzhak Rafael, and he bitterly attacked Dr. Joseph Berg. And by the way, Joseph Berg's wife's maiden name is Slonim, and her father was the last rabbi of Hebron, and he was a relative of the Schneerson family. It didn't matter to the rabbi. Well, why would it matter? He couldn't care about his mother-in-law or his brother-in-law or his nephew. Why would a distant cousin matter? But he attacked all these people and more. And more, he attacked the whole Mizrahi. The whole Mizrahi party, which then was a powerhouse of around 15 people, he attacked them for what reason? Because not because they had mixed youth groups, not because some of their high schools were co-ed. No, he didn't care about that. What he cared about is that they weren't listening to him. And when the Erloya Rav, Rabbi Yechman Sefer, Alma Shalom, and when the Belzer Rebbe, Yibodol Chaim Tov Maruchim, the present Belzer Rebbe suggested that the law be fixed 
that the language say that someone had to convert according to the Shulchan Aruch. The Rebbe was crazy. He went crazy. No, it couldn't be done. It had to be Kahalacha. Of course, Alpi Shulchan Aruch makes more sense. According to the code of Jewish law, Alpi Halacha, the conservative movement could argue that their interpretation of Halacha is also Halacha. Didn't matter. He came up with it. The Mashiach in Potencio came up with the idea that it had to be Kahalacha. And he was screaming and hollering and he attacked everyone. And I remember in 1971, Dr. Bird was going to New York and he wanted to go into the Rebbe to get a bracha for the Rosh Hashanah. The Rebbe would not see him. So Berg said, I'm not worried. He went back to Israel and went into the Belzer Rebbe and got a bracha from the Belzer Rebbe for Rosh Hashanah. This went on in a bitter manner. And of course, in 1977, 78, I believe, no, no, later, 88, 87, uh, the Aguda and Degla split. There was a Hasidic Aguda called uh, Aguda Shisrael, and there was a Litvish Aguda called Degla Torah. Lubavitch then became political, and they openly supported the Aguda Shisrael in a war against Rav Shach and his party, Degla Torah. It was also the year that uh, Shas first appeared, the uh, Haredi Sephardi party. It was a massive victory by these groups. Aguda, without the Mitznagdin, with Lubavitch support, got six six seats in the Knesset. Degel, unbelievably, Rav Shach performed his own little face. Degel got two seats in the Knesset. Shas, I think, got around 10. Don't hold me to the exact numbers. Miu Yehudi could have been repaired that year. It could have been fixed. There were enough ultra-Orthodox people in the Knesset to fix it. But the Rebbe dropped it like hotcakes. Why? I know why. And everyone knows why. Because the conservative, reform, and secular American Jewish organizations warned Chabad that if Miu Yehudi is fixed and it says Kahalocha, they, their millionaires will stop supporting Chabad. And those were the years when Chabad houses were spread, were started to be spread out all over America. And the Rebbe blinked. The man who was Mashiach and Potentio blinked. And he dropped Miyuri like hotcakes. And it didn't matter to him that people like Dr. Avner Chai Skiaki of Mizrahi, who was a, a, a Sephardic political leader, member of Knesset, backed him. And other people put their careers and their livelihoods on the line because of Miyuti, it didn't matter to the Rebbe that he had supporters. He just dropped it because all that mattered to him that his, and he created a millionaire's club at the same time, the millionaire's club. Lubavitch now had a millionaire's club, not a club of people who memorized a thousand pages of Hasidus, but a millionaire's club, people who are millionaires. Then, but you, let's talking, now go. Talking. I don't know what this is. It's called the Millionaires Club. That's what it was called, the Millionaires Club, with Abramel Shemtov and, and the, the the rest of these people. You know, it was a million. It was called the Millionaires Club. I mean, you can one can. Well, fortunately, Lubavitch is uh, you know just probably like the Soviet Union. All of this is uh, traceable in the Algemeiner Journal and perhaps even in Kfar Chabad magazine, uh, the magazine for the Hasidic gentleman, Kfar Chabad magazine. Um, you know, all this is documented there. And but so that's the Miu Yehudi story. Now, let me just go one one step, a second step. Who was Rabbi Rifkin? Who was Meshad Dave Rifkin? You know what? I don't know who he was. Apparently his family were 
not uh, Lubavitchers, they were what, Ladia Hasidim, something like that, which is a branch of Chabad. But uh, Meshav Rifkin, as you said, was close to the um, to the uh, Rashab. He was close to the Rayats. He was the Rosh Yeshiva of Torah Vadas. He taught the Smicha class. He taught Chulin and Yerudeya. Just just to give a background of of his uh, stature and who he was. I have his book in front of me. Unfortunately, I don't. I don't have volume one. I have volume. Uh, I don't have the first edition. I have second edition. Kuntras Hiskafta the Rebbe, which is a fascinating book, which is of the last day, traces the last days of the Rishab, and in it's a it's a biography based on halacha. It's not a biography based on facts. It's a biography based on halacha. It's fascinating. I don't claim that I understand all of it. I'm not a halachist. But it's a fascinating, that, enough I understand that it's a fascinating work. I've gone through it. But the book itself, forget about the, has some fascinating things. Page four, the book is dedicated to, guess who? Harabonis Shana Hornstein. It's dedicated to a Holocaust victim, Shana Hornstein, the youngest daughter of the Rayats. And the second dedication is to Menachem Mendel Hakohen Hornstein, another Holocaust victim. That's who the book is dedicated to. Wow. No Lubavitch book that I know of has such a dedication. So it takes a friend, not a member of the Schneerson family, to dedicate a book. Page 155 of the book. Who is this part dedicated to? Lezecher Kedoshim to the people of his family, of Rabbi Rifkin's family, who were killed in the Chorban and the Holocaust. Wow. And the next page is also a Zefer Kedoshim to other people of his family who were killed in the Holocaust. Rabbi Rifkin was a normal Jew. Rabbi Rifkin was just a normal Jew. There was a Holocaust. Six million Jews were killed, including many members of his family including members of his Rebbe's family, the Hornsteins. So he dedicated this book to their memory. Wow. Wow. Under normal circumstances, this would be nothing. It'd be nothing. Any book that a Rav, the Hungarian Rav puts out is usually dedicated to the Kedoshim, but not Lubavitch. Next. These are sponsors of the book, and I'm not going to go into all of them, but among the sponsors are American descendants of Shmuel Gurari, who was the Rashab's right-hand man. And these descendants, when talking to Barry Gurari, were no friends of Rabbi Menachem Schneerson. But Rabbi Yitzhak Feldman is also here. And he, the best of my knowledge, was one of the Lubavitchers who refused to support Menachem Schneerson. And I don't know if he's still with us. If he is, he should have a long life. Now, and I'm going to finish with this. And the sponsors, there are many sponsors. Most of them are obviously people who received smicha from Rabbi, from Rabbi Rifkin. As I said, Rabbi Rifkin was the person who taught the smicha shir in Torah Das. But among these people is a man whose name is Harav Shalom Dubir Gurari. Oh, oh, oh. Rifkin just violated one of the major tenets of modern-day Chabad. He put in the name of Shalom Bergerari in his book. My, my God, what a chutzpah, what a chutzpah. And not only that, in the book itself, and I can't find it right now, I don't have the energy to go looking, 
but in the table of contents, in the Sefer itself, Rabbi Rifkin has information about the following. Chasenas Bita Abchira Be'erav Shabbos Kodesh Yudal Nisan Tarpei Aleph. So he has something about the wedding of Gurari in 1921. And before that, he has about the engagement of the wedding of Mrs. Khanna to Rashad. And I believe, my memory is a little hazy these days, but I believe in this book, Rabbi Rifkin writes <clears throat> a thing that will upset some Lubavitchers, although today's Lubavitchers, as, as our host says, are in love with their Rebbe, so it doesn't matter. Uh, and what is that? He writes that Rabbi Sholem Duber Schneerson, known as the Rashab, personally picked Rabbi Shmaryo Gurari as the chassan, the groom for his granddaughter. This was not picked by Rabbi Joseph Schneerson, but he was picked by Rabbi Sholem Duber Schneerson. Wow, amazing. The fifth, fifth, the fifth Bobavitcher Rebbe picked Rabbi Shmaryo Gurari. What a chutzpah. What a chutzpah. Didn't he know that the Mashiach in Potential was waiting to become the Lubavitcher Rebbe? Anyway, that's the background of all of this. Now, in the Algemeiner Journal, edited in those days by a real character, as a whole Malistika Ganeden, Gershon Jacobson. Someone should write a book about this guy. Another me, he was very close to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and I really believe that everything he wrote in the Algemeiner went through the Lubavitcher Rebbe's uh, uh, imprimatur, including, you know, and it's shocking because Gershon printed pornography in the Algemeiner Journal. You know, my mother was not a Hasidista. She wasn't a Hasid. She didn't claim to be anything. She she threw the paper away in the end of days of the paper. She said, what's this Jukta? You know, she threw it away. I remember that. You know, my father had greater tolerance. So Gershon, this was the big Hasid of the Rebbe. Gershon had an interview with Dr. Yitzhak Rafael, who was the, one of the leaders of the Mizrahi, about Miu Yehudi. And Yitzhak Rafael, you know, on the record, he, he did, Yitzhak Rafael said, well, you know, we're not listening to the Lubavitcher, but me, we, meaning the Mizrahi political party. And just as in Poland, we didn't listen to the Rebbeim, the Ger Rebbe, the Chortkova Rebbe. We had our own rabbis. We had our own rabbi, Rabbi Amiel, and we didn't listen to the Chafetz Chaim, who was part of the Abuda. We did what we uh, what we felt was right, and Mizrahi wasn't founded on the concept of obeying rabbis in political situations. Rabbis were to be obeyed when it came to uh, halacha, iser v'heter, as they say. Uh, but you know, rabbi wasn't going to tell us when we leave the Knesset and when we don't. And he added an interesting point, which is historically true, that the last president of the Mizrahi in Poland was none other. Yes, none other than the Chafetz Chaim's son, Rabbi Leib Pupko, who helped his father in editing the Mishnah Brura. And after Chafetz Chaim was Rabbi of Raden for a very short time when he was very young. He was after that he was never the Rabbi of Raden. But when it happened that when Chafetz Chaim died, the Rabbi of Raden died soon afterwards, and the people in Raden elected Rabbi Leib Pupko, the Chafetz Chaim's son, as the Rav of Raden, and he died in 1931, right before. I mean, son-in-law. Right? No, 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 he was the son. Rabbi Pupko, he had, Rabbi Chaim's real name may have been Pupko. Oh, it wasn't okay. Kahan. 
Uh, people have different names. And uh, so Rabbi Popka was the lead, was the president of Mizrahi in Poland, and I even found a picture of him sitting at a conference of Mizrahi. So this isn't just a fact. Well, the Rebbe read it in the Algemeiner, Gershon printed it, and the Rebbe went bananas. He went total bananas. He started screaming, where are the Chavetz Chaim's descendants? Where are the Talmidim of the Chavetz Chaim? Why don't they defend the uh, Kava, the honor of the Chavetz Chaim, which is being impugned by Dr. Yitzhak Rafael? Uh, Rafael is insulting the Chavetz Chaim when he's saying that uh, we Mizrahi didn't listen to the Chavetz Chaim. Now, well, the facts are that Yitzhak Rafael did not insult the Chavetz Chaim. He just said a fact. But, you know, Mizrahi never took orders from Rav Chaim Ezer, it never took orders from the Chaim, it never took orders from the Ger Rebbe, it never took orders from the Belzer Rebbe. It, it, it wasn't an organization based on taking orders of rabbis. But the Lubavitcher Rebbe, sitting safely in Crown Heights, uh, went bananas. Now, in response to what he said, none of the Chavetz Chaim's descendants, and his son-in-law, Rabbi Mendel Zox, I believe, was still alive then, and he said nothing. And his grandchildren said nothing, and other relatives of Chavetz Chaim were alive, did not respond. Many Talmidim of the Chavetz Chaim were still alive, they did not respond. The Rod and their Talmidim did not respond. The only person who responded was um, uh, a Lubavitcher fellow traveler, Rabbi Chaim Yitzchuk Pupko, who was, I don't even know if he was related to the Chavetz Chaim, but uh, you know, he, he was a fellow traveler of Lubavitch going back many years. And so he did, but no, no other member of the Chavetz family responded. No other Rosh Hashiva responded. So that got the Rebbe even more infuriated, and he demanded now what he called, what the Rebbe called, a a groundswell of of simple Jews demanding that Yitzchak Rafael be put into Cherem, he be menada nidui Cherem, excommunicated. For those who don't understand, that Yitzchak Rafael be excommunicated. And petitions were passed around um, all over the United States by the shluchim who had important work in spreading Judaism. The, the shluchim were, 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 were assigned to spread Judaism, put on tefillin. Of course, they, they spent their time passing out petitions to Jews who didn't know what, what the whole thing was all about. Um, and so these petitions were signed. And, you know, and the thing that uh, I had forgot, I had written this when I wrote, written about this event a number of years ago, I, I wrote that I myself signed the petition. Maybe it's true. I may have. Uh, you know, the Rebbe then, his next step was to create something called the Avra Bani Lubavitch, which today exists in a different format. At that time, there were still some well-known Lubavitch Chassidim who were a bunny. Rabbi Levitin, I think, was still alive. Rabbi Kazanovsky was still alive. Rabbi Simpson was still alive. Uh, Rabbi Israel Jacobson was still alive. Uh, Rabbi Dovber Ushbo was still alive. There were others. And he created Vav Rabbani Lubavitch and, um, for, with the express purpose of being the executors of this cheyrum. The, the people on the street demanded the cheyrum. Those were the signatories, the hundreds of thousands of people were signed, and these rabbis were going to execute the cheyrum. Now, I don't remember if the cheyrum were actually executed or not, but Rabbi Rifkin's name was, was on it because Rabbi Rifkin was probably, you know, together with Rabbi Levitin and Rabbi Simpson, he was probably one of the five leading uh, rabbinic scholars in the Lubavitch community in the United States. And Rifkin refused to sign this. Rabbi Rifkin refused to sign this, which, you know, took a lot of courage, <clears throat> but he refused. And I don't remember if this was in the Algemeiner or not. This is in, this, this thing happened many years ago. 
Uh, and the Rebbe went crazy once again. I don't, I mean, according to some things I was rereading, he attacked Rifkin. I don't necessarily remember that. And, I, I'm, you know, I'm not saying he did. He verbally attacked him. He may have, but I don't remember that. Uh, and what I don't remember doesn't is lomalin velomoridin, as they say. You don't uh, go by it or you don't not go by it. It's just, I just don't remember. Uh, and it's not my, a diplomatic uh, amnesia, you know. Um, I'm not the rugged other. And, um, but the Lubavitchers, then, this is around 1975. Now I'm beginning to remember 75, 76. And the um, Lubavitcher um, dogs of uh, war. Rif Rifkin passed on in 76. Okay, so perfect. This is when it happened. It happened in 75. Okay, that, that, my memory is still not totally wrong. Um, so the Lubavitcher dogs, um, and I'm not saying that the Rebbe encouraged them, but the Lubavitcher dogs then started terrorization of Rabbi Rifkin. Now, I am not aware of any physical attacks on Rabbi Rifkin, but terrorization in the Hasidic world in the United States, you know, uh, has a history. And that, that history goes back to the good friends of Lubavitch, Satmar. Satmar had a history of terrorizing its opponents. So let's say they terrorized the Kleisenberger Rebbe because the Kleisenberger Rebbe um, suddenly in the early 1950s adopted a much more favorable attitude to the state of Israel. And the Kleisenberger Rebbe prior to that was an orbit around the Satmar Rebbe. And had he not broken with the Satmar Rebbe, there's no question that he would have become the Satmar Rebbe eventually. He was a, a giant in rabbinics, a giant, nothing less than a giant. Uh, they also terrorized the Vishnitzer Rebbe when he would come to the United States because he was, in their words, a Tzioni. He was a Zionist. And they probably terrorized other people. And the Satmar made a science out of it. And this is all described in a little book by uh, Chaim Lieberman. Not Chaim Lieberman, the Rebbe's secretary. Chaim Lieberman, who was a Baltshuva, who was a writer in the Forverts. He was very active in the in the trade unions in the United States. And at some point he became a Baltshuva. And Rabyankov Kamenetsky writes that he, that Rabhaim Lieberman was one of the greatest Jews in the United States. That's in the words of Rabyankov Kamenetsky. Um, Rabhaim Lieberman, again, not the Lubavitcher, the writer for the Forerats, um, wrote a whole book, The Rebbe and the Satan, the Satan and the Rebbe about the Satmar Rebbe and about the Satmar Rebbe's terror. To, to pronounce it the way the Lubavitcher pronounced it, the terror. So the Lubavitchers were not completely without guidance on what terror means. Terror means calling ambulances and fire trucks to a person's house at night. Terror means subscribing to magazines and newspapers, including pornographic magazines and newspapers to a person's house. Terror means telephone calls at night. Terror means calling a rebbitzin at night. This is what terror means. So there is terror short of going out with a cane and hitting a person over the head. You know, that I leave to another Hasidic group in Israel, which is involved in internecine warfare right now, where there is real terror, which the Orthodox press in America refuses to report about. There's real terror in the largest Hasidic group in Israel today. It's not Lubavitch and it's not Satmar. They're fighting among each other in violent physical warfare with people injured. But Rifkin was not attacked physically, as far as I know. But the, the hounds of Lubavitch are hounds. 
They are dogs, but they're ignorant dogs. They are stupid dogs. They forgot that Rabbi Rifkin's son-in-law is one, was one, Rabbi Aaron Ben-Zion Shurin, who was a professor of Bible at Stern College, but more famously was a regular writer, twice a week, a columnist for the Yiddish language Forwards. He was the Av Khan, the editor of the Forwards for many years, wanted a kosher avinkel, a kosher corner in the Forwards, which is a paper full of apocorses and whatever. And so Rabbi Shorin, among other people, was, was you know, gave the hechsher in the Forwards. He wrote articles. I also believe Fridays he wrote an article about the Parsha. And he's a good writer. I enjoyed reading Rabbi Shurin. I read him regularly. Uh, unfortunately, I never met him, even when I worked in Stern. I don't know why. Um, and Rabbi Shurin wrote, wrote, also wrote articles in a book form about um, he and his brother, about the famous rabbis. Anyway, so Shurin, they forgot that Shurin was a columnist for the Yiddish language daily at that time, and um, that he would probably respond. And of course, Shurin responded by writing about, in a series of articles, writing about what these people did to his father-in-law and with pictures of, of the swastika on his father-in-law's porch, swastika on his father-in-law's stoop and um, broken windows, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I was working at that point for a secular Jewish organization of Jews from Eastern Europe, completely secular, anti-religious, but they were also victims of Lubavitch propaganda, they thought Lubavitch were good people. They thought, oh, these are the Avas Yisrael Hasidim. So I remember my boss came over to me and in Yiddish asked me, wie kann das sein, dass an Amos? Shurn is a rock in Zinan? Did Shurn lose his marbles? I mean, Lubavitch is einfach the schönste Yidin in the world. Einfach the beste Yidin in the world. Lubavitch are the best Jews. How could it be? So I... I had, I listen, in those days, I wasn't even so anti-Lubavitch. Um, so I said, you know, uh, you know, it's an internal matter in Lubavitch. It's an internal matter. But of course, I knew it was true because every Hasidic group has a terror squad. Every large Hasidic group, you know, Satmar has a terror squad. Lubavitch has a terror. Gear has terror. Bells has terror to my chagrin. Every Hasidic group, because there are always Hasidim who need to be put in their place, and there are always opposing Hasidic groups who need to be put in their place. A number of years ago, like 30 years ago, uh, the Belgian Hasidim reprinted a Transylvanian Yiddish weekly uh, printed, uh, published by a Spinker Hasid Kolak, and they reprinted it uh, in, a, in a bound volume, which details all the terror of Satmar against, um, at that time, um, one of the Spinker Rebbe's son-in-laws, um, you know, what was his name, Rabbi Weiss, I believe, he was a rod in Krola, and he was competing with one of the Satma Rebbe's um, relations to succeed the Satma Rebbe as chief rabbi of Krola in Transylvania. And, you know, there's stories about uh, Satmar Chassidim invading the mikveh with women inside their Satmar Chassidim. Yeah, there are all sorts of stories. So terror in Chassidim has a long history you know, Alexander and Gare were fighting in Poland. And, you know, this is an old story. And in America, the Satmar recreated terror and they refined it. And, uh, you know, so the Lubavitchers also have the terror squads. And as you said, um, 
I don't believe that, uh, you know, I, I don't believe that Rabbi Rifkin was physically assaulted, but life can be made miserable. I, I can tell you, I, it fortunately didn't happen to me, but I can tell you, I wouldn't like fire trucks coming to me. I wouldn't like ambulances coming. I wouldn't like uh, one spouse called up and say that, that uh, your spouse just expired. I wouldn't like um, uh, pornography coming to my house uh, with children in my house. I wouldn't like all of that. So there's plenty of terror short of taking a iron bar and hitting you in your eye. Well, but years later, the same terror, um, just a bit more refined, because now it wasn't just uh, some rabbi, important rabbi, but you know, now it was the rabbi's sister-in-law and the daughter-in-law, the daughter of the previous rabbi, and she and her husband and her son were, and his wife were fighting the rabbi, at least in their eyes or we're disobeying the Rebbe, disobeying the Rebbe because in Lubavitch's, if you're not with me, you're against me. That, that's an important thing to remember. In Lubavitch, if you're not with them, you're against them. So if you're not ready to say, arguably Rabbi Schneerson was the greatest rabbi in the last 5,000 years, and then you take out your checkbook and give $5,000 to Shliach, that means you're against Lubavitch if you don't do that, because there's no such thing as being neutral. There's no, Lubavitch learned its, its techniques in, among the best teachers, and we know who those teachers were, you know, the teachers. Don't, don't, don't let me, don't anyone say that I mean that about Lubavitch. I don't mean I mean it about the teachers, these people in, in Europe, in Central Europe and in East Europe, <clears throat> the people they copied. So, Rebetzin uh, Gurari lost her eye. And, you know, once again, the Rebbe always said, can you talk in terror and Lubavitch? There's no such thing as terror and Lubavitch. Um, you know, I'm ready to give 25 bucks to uh, my local shliach, to all my local shluchim, who is probably 100 shluchim every corner that's a shliach, if they can show me that the Rebbe apologized to Rebbe Tsungarari. You know, of course, the Rebbe was always fine with the line that he used, uh, <clears throat> that if you're, you're not, Mishalom micha, shmamina shanicha. You know, from the Gemara, that if you're if you're not making a machol, if you're not making a protest, it means that you're okay with it. Either you protest or you're okay with it. So to use the Rebbe's line as he used in Chazal, uh, well, he didn't protest against Mrs. Gurari's um, being beaten. So obviously, you know, I guess he wasn't too perturbed. And uh, and since he claimed that 770 belonged to Gudas Chassidi Chabad, and he was the leader of Gudas Chassidi Chabad, so in essence he he needs to, he certainly had some responsibility for what went on in in the premises of Agudah which was also the residence of Ravi Samarius and his wife, Khan and Gerard. So there's no way around it. You can't have it both ways. If 770 was based on Agudah which the sign was hurriedly put up, then the Rebbe was, in a certain sense, accepted responsibility for what went on in that building. And if he accepted responsibility, he should at least apologize. He should have gone over to Montclair, you know, to Mont get into the car, have Krinsky gas it up with the best uh, diesel fuel and get get his driver license renewed and, uh, you know, and uh, get to, um, get to uh, what's it called, to Montclair and apologize to Robertson Guarari. You know, that would have been the appropriate thing to do, but uh, that wasn't done. Uh, there's no apology. 
the the uh, perpetrator. So, so let me let me ask you something. This this thing that happens to Rav to um, to Rav Rivkin is not something that uh, may be related to this Mihuyhudi issue and the fact that he refused to uh, uh, sign the petition, whatever petition was there. I think it's in in all of those cases. It's uh, something deeper, which relates to maybe his stance on the Rebbe's Rabistre, and then, yeah. and then, and then um, it sort of it sort of lays there dormant, dormant, dormant for for decades, and then some some incident that triggers it, and boom, here comes the attack. Listen, the Rebbe never forgot, and we know he had a good memory, <laughs> so that's that's un, uh, you can't deny that he never forgot and he never forgave. And if anyone out there thinks that the Barry Gurari case was about books, that person is an innocent person. He's an innocent person. He's a naive, innocent person. The case wasn't about the books. The case was about 1950-51. The Rebbe never forgave Barry. He never forgave him for not supporting him against his own father. He never forgave him. And then he never forgave Barry for not becoming the slave of his. For in 1951, for saying, Oi, Fetter, Fetter 11, I'm ready to become an Evit Kanani for you. What should I become? Should I become the first great teacher of the Lubavitcher Shiva in Pittsburgh? I'm ready. Should I become the janitor in 770? I'm there. He never forgave him. Never. And the same thing is true with Rifkin. And that's why I read parts, the uh, not parts of the book, but parts of the uh, format of the book. Hey, Rifkin clearly was doing everything the Lubavitcher that didn't do. He talked about the Khorban. He was connected to Samarius Gorari. He was connected to the Rashab. He was connected to the Rayats. He, Rifkin was everything. Rifkin was everything that the Rebbe wasn't. Now, if the Rebbe... You know, the Rebbe would say Kaddish for his brother-in-law in a quiet undertone. Sota Vocha, I think it's called. I keep on, uh, uh, just a very sh- small voice. Uh, but he didn't announce that a Fabrengan or something, Heinti de Yortzeit, you know, Rav, Rebbe Nachem Mendel Akein, Ben Harav, Reb, uh, what, what was his father's name? Um, um, uh, also with a man, uh, can't remember at all. You know, Akay and Hornstein, the Chasna de Benesias and the Rayats and the Chasna de Benesias, the Marash, was his Ungekumen, durch die Nazis, Yemach Shimon de Zichron in Treblinka. I think that's where he died. Never said that. Never said that because the Holocaust was another subject that you couldn't talk about. It would have hurt. It would hurt. He thought that it would hurt Lubavitch and the American Jews. Of course, the answer is Pumfakert, that as Alma Shachter said, that and the state of Israel were the two Sinai events of Judaism. You know, we, as I always say, in you know, there are other events too. You know, and that's what you you you've uh, you've added to that. The the uh, the gulags, 100% true. You know, it's destroyed Soviet Jewry in, in, in a one-two punch. You know, the rest of Jewry. Well, what, what what what's amazing in this whole story is that uh, there's a little biography that I'm going to publish of. Um, of Rifkin, and it shows how incredibly close he was to Rashab and Rayats and his whole family. And of course, not only just him, but uh, all three daughters of Rayats, they they, fall, they fell all over themselves uh, to be friends with Nacha. 
Now, a person who has such connections to the Rebbe and sort of uh, start a war against him is is just like unbelievable. It's it's a, it's a closest. He's not a blood relative, but it's a closest virtual f- family member. I mean, how could it be? how could you know you you look you look at this biography, which is just let me finish. That was put up by Torah Vedas, and it says there that he was Rosh Hashiv in Tamchit Mimim. He was with uh, Rashab, the only person who was uh, who Rashab took with with himself when he was in Rastov was virtually Rashab's Chivrusa. He was also on the deathbed of uh, close to deathbed of Rashab. And you have this person who's so close to that family, and and, and you sort of like start a war against. I mean, you you start a war. You, you start the war about somebody else, but not the person who's so rooted in this family. But I don't understand what you're talking about. I I don't understand what you're saying. If he started a war against the only blood relative of the Rayats that was left in the world, Barry Garari, why wouldn't he start a war against anyone else? I mean, he started a war against the single Raviyat's only descendants, the only descendant of the Rashab, the Rashab and the Raviyat's, their only descendant. He started a major war, an atomic war, not a small conflagration that he started against Rifkin. He started an atomic war against Barry Gurari. Why? Not because of books. No, no, no. Not because of books but because Barry refused to become an avid Knani to him. And the same thing is true with Rifkin. I read those things because I wanted to make a point. Rifkin had the chutzpah to print the name of Barry Garari in the book. He had the chutzpah to dedicate the book to Shana and Mendel Hornson. The father's name was Meshake, and now I remember. And he, and, and, and he had the chutzpah to write in the book that the, um, what's his name, that the Rashab picked Shmarya Gahari as the son-in-law. Wait, wait a second. That does mean something. If the Rashab personally picked Shmarya Gahari as his granddaughter's son-in-law, hmm, that gives him a few points ahead of uh, Rabbi Mendel Schneerson to become the son of Babacha Rebbe, doesn't it? I mean, in the well, eyes like, of know, most normal. Yeah, when, when I initially sort of spoke to you about the list of people that were dissed by Ramash, I didn't include uh, Rashag into this because nominally Rashag was a, was his chosid. But as you pointed out, in practical terms, compared to the stature that Rashag had uh, in in this family, uh, he was sort of like uh, just de- you know put put to the very low rank in Chabad. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing, the other mm-hmm. thing is uh, is is I. I, you know, I I never gotten to the bottom of uh, what actually happened with Zalman Schneerson. And that is, uh, but obviously there was something because you look at, uh, you look at Sholem Bear and you look at Elihaim Karlibach. You know, you, I was looking the other day on, on uh, the, the Hasna picture of Elihaim and you look at like, everybody, the Rebbe is there, Ramash is there, everybody who is in Chabad is there, all women, all men. And yeah, so the person, on that level, decides to become a Bobave. And then his brother-in-law, Sholomber, also decides to become a Bobave. That like couldn't be an accident. There was something there, there's some, some leftover bitterness uh, that sort of pushed them into that direction. But what exactly happened, I don't know. Well, you know, I, I can say one thing. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know any of these people. 
you know, um, I don't know. I'd never met Zalm Schneerson, I'll be honest. I should have I should have gone down to uh, 770 Rockaway Parkway and talked to him, but I never did because I was, uh, you know, I was a foolish person. Um, and I never met Shalom Bear Schneerson. I never, I mean, I met Ellie Hein Karbach, but, uh, you know, the Karbach brothers, you know, I don't want to go into Lush and Horror. They were, they had a lot of Yekish stick to them because after all, they were Yekish genetically. Uh, difficult to talk to either one of them, to Shlema or to uh, Eli Chaim. At least for me, it was difficult. Um, but that's irrelevant. Um, but my hunch is, you can see, I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg, but uh, you can see that Zalman Schneerson never got a job in this fast movement. Even in the 50s, the movement was pretty strong. It had a yeshiva in New Jersey, it had a yeshiva in New York, it had a yeshiva in Montreal. They never could find Zalman Schneerson a job as a Sholem Eishiv, as a Mashkiach, as nothing, Gornish. And the same thing with Sholem Beer. Sholem Beer Schneerson was a work for the PO, and I think later on he was a Shechet. Me, you know, he never, they couldn't find a job for Sean Bershnerson. They couldn't find a job as a janitor in uh, Beis Rivka, right? nothing, zero. And I don't know about Eli Chaim. Uh, I don't think Eli Chaim was supposedly the the the, the chazer for the Rayats. I don't know what that means. I don't think the Rayats' uh, speech was understandable the last six years of his life. So I don't know what, what it means that Eli Chaim was the chazer of the Rayats, because I don't think the Rayats said very much or was, I think Ellie Simpson and Rashad were the only two people who couldn't understand what the Rayats was saying, maybe Barry. Um, so something happened. I talked to Barry about uh, Zalman Schneerson, and Barry said that his father had differences with Zalman Schneerson. But Barry came back and said that, uh, you know, a, a second later, he said, other Reb Zalman Schneerson is going to roll in Altenschnitt. He was a rabbi of the old school, which is a, a, a nice compliment. He was not, he was a, a old fashioned rough. So uh, Barry didn't, didn't speak about Zalman Schneerson with any hate or any venom. He just said that his father had differences. That's legitimate. It's like, you know, I, I, I was friendly with the late Rabbi Israel uh, Friedman, who was a social worker, book collector, uh, very nice man. He, he was the son of the old Boyana Rebbe on the Upper West Side and the Upper and the Lower East Side. And Rabbi Israel Friedman once told me a good part. Rabbi Israel Friedman was married to the sister of Rabbi Haskell Luxstein. He should live well and long. He was married to uh, Joseph Luxstein's daughter. And uh, in, in, during a kid's Shabbos morning in uh, in in their shul, the huge shul, Kiel Shishur, in the Upper East Side years ago. Rabbi Friedman told me a good work that his father, the Bayana Rebbe, said, Machlekas is a shlechtazach. Machlekas is a bad thing. Chilukadeus is a good thing. But to disagree with people is a good thing. So, and, and this is something that Barry also told me, that, that let's say his father said had what, what unofficial cabinet, a cabinet in Warsaw, in Otvotsk, uh, of advisors, Chatsi Feigen, Chaim Lieberman, Yehuda Ever, Shmar Yagurari, um, I think Moshe Cohen Hornstein was co-opted into this cabinet, but he really wasn't a member. And there may have been one or two other people. And Barry told me that there were Kalos Gavalman, as they say in Yiddish, that these meetings, people were screaming at each other. People were fighting with each other, not physically. And the Frederica Rebbe permitted disagreements. He wasn't a dictator. You know, the end of the day, he had the final word. 
but he wasn't a dictator. He was willing to listen to and entertain other opinions. And of course, most of these opinions were either about the yeshivas in, in Poland or about aid to Jews in uh, the Soviet Union. And that, that was the two chief activities of Rabbi Joseph Schneerson. Um, but under the leadership of Rabbi Nahum Schneerson, differences of opinion were not permitted. Forget about it, they weren't permitted. So I don't, so there were differences of opinion between Zalma Schneerson and the Rashag, and it's seemingly the Rashag was in fact the mouthpiece of Rabbi Joseph Eisenerson. I don't think anyone, any normal person can deny that, that the Rashag by the 1940s didn't do anything without uh, the Rayatza's uh, permission. Uh, so there must have been differences of opinion, and then it exploded, not in a fight, but Zalmashnerson was upset that Benjamin Gordetsky was appointed as the head of the Lubavitcher office in Paris. It wasn't him, Zalmashnerson, who was appointed, but it was Benjamin Gordetsky who was, who was appointed to lead Lubavitch in Paris and North Africa. And I'm sure that Zalman was upset about that. Why that was done, I have no idea. And, you know, maybe there's some people around of Zalman Schneerson's family who know. And, they, and Zalman Schneerson must have some sort of very uh, interesting archive someplace, which probably his family has. Um, and that must be fascinating material. Uh, the letters to Joseph I. Schneerson, the letters back. I I have some. Uh, what 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 year books. was that? When was Binyamin Gorodetsky appointed? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Probably forty-seven or forty-eight, maybe uh -huh. earlier. Because I think it is. It is Gordetsky. sort of disconcerting because Zalman was all that time in Paris, and then somebody shows up from Mother Russia, who is also known as a as a big macher of that Shalom movement. And here here you go. Right. Because originally, I think Gordetsky was in Paris and his, his mission statement was to take care of the Lubavitcher Hasidim who left uh, Russia on the echelons, uh, who then moved on to Paris from Peking in Germany. Uh, but I think Gordetsky converted that job to be the head of the Lishcha, the office of Lubavitch in, in Paris to run everything. And but on the other hand, when the Rebbe went to um, greet his mother in Paris, but that's what, what just to that? be sure, there was still the Rayatz's time. It wasn't uh, Ramas, right? Yeah, but the Rebbe did stay, I believe, in the house of Zalman Schneerson, or, or Zalman Schneerson is in some of the pictures. So it doesn't seem to have been a, a bad blood at that point. Um, so I don't know. I, you know, I'll be honest with you. I don't know Zalman Schneerson apparently was a candidate to become Rebbe in 1951. He proposed his candidacy, which, you know, with all due respect to Reb Zalman, he was Yishmashir Snefesh, and he, he was also Yishmashir Snefesh in, during the Holocaust. So I have tremendous respect for him, and he doesn't need my respect, by the way. And history speaks louder than anything else. And But Zalman was foolish in uh, proclaiming his candidacy in 1951. Why? I mean, there are two sons-in-law, there's a grandson. Why Why would you expect that you would be named Lubavitcher Rebbe? I mean, I mean, so you would eliminate Gerard because he's not far, part of the family, but he is. Chosno Kibbenov, Chazal tells. A son-in-law is like a son. And, uh, you know, and then, uh, you know, after all else... Maybe, may, maybe it was... Okay, so maybe it was, after all, a statement against the Rebbe. Maybe it was what? Maybe it was a statement against the Rebbe. Against uh, Menachem Schneerson? Yes, correct. I don't know. I mean, certainly Menachem Schneerson, 
you know, whatever, you know, I, I'll say about him, but, you know, listen, he was a rabbinic scholar. No one can deny that. And apparently he knew his Hasidus and he grew and he was a, he was a member of the Schneerson family. I mean, doesn't it make, and he was a son-in-law of the Rayats, doesn't it make more sense to choose him as Rebbe than it does Zalma Schneerson? I mean, all right, maybe I'm missing some missing link here. It's possible. But uh, Barry didn't mention anything like that, which doesn't, again, doesn't mean anything. Um, but, you know, it seems like the Zalman Schneerson, and as you said, you enumerated them all, um, the Rashag. Listen, the Rashag, one of the things that I think I accept from the Lubavitch stories is the Rashag asked the Rebbe in 53 or something in a semi-public forum. He asked the Rebbe, you know, in a certain sense that, you know, I'll become your chassid. If I'll be treated the same way as my father-in-law treated me. And I believe the Rebbe sort of nodded. But in fact, that's not what the Rebbe did. The Rebbe ran circles around the Rashag. He created his own school system to circumvent the Rashag as head of United Lubavitcher Yeshivas. He, uh, you know... Uh, he made some bold moves in the mid-50s against the United Lubavitcher Yeshiva's fundraising, um, you know, because of supposedly the United Lubavitcher Yeshiva saying Hatikva at their dinner, big deal, big deal. Since when did Lubavitcher ever become a tour cartonic? Uh, you know, I don't know when he became when he became tour cartonic, when he had some Yushalmis come into his office, he was in Turkarta. When Shlomo Goran, Shlomo Goran came into his office, he became a Zionist. When this guy came in, he became a... Uh, an American, a student of American literature. You know, he was a man for he was a man for all seasons, and um, so I don't know. I, I, you know, he Rashad was not treated correctly. You know, and Yud Beis Thomas and Yud Shvat, the days memorial days for the um, Rayats, the Rebbe never passed a microphone over to the uh, Garari and just leaned back and rested for five minutes and said, "Shvager eleven, Zog was Katrofen in Yenateg." Say something, what you remember from those uh, uh, days, never, 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 because it all goes back to what I said before. This man was troubled. He had a guilty conscience. He knew he knew someplace that he either legally by dent of a will or morally by his modern Orthodox behavior in Paris and Berlin was not ra'oi, and I don't know how you translate that word into English, was not, not qualified as not the word, was not appropriate to be Lubavitcher Rebbe. Deep down, he may have felt that. He may have felt that in either case. And so he in, sort of became an invisible person and transposed his own personality into the persona of Rabbi Joseph Eichnerson. And that way, he was Lubavitcher Rebbe, but he wasn't Lubavitcher Rebbe. And that, you know, and it's also shown by the fact that when Gerari uh, Barry was uh, involved in the bookcase, the Rebbe stopped saying Mamorim. And essentially, the Rebbe said, Barry never said this, Barry said he wanted the books or the money. And uh, the Rebbe said, no, this is a fight about the Messias. The Rebbe said it's a fight about the Messias, that Barry will hum the bankle, that Barry wants the chair. Barry wants to become Rebbe. That this is the Barry is a, is a usurper. Barry is fighting the, the the for the chair of where? Where did he get the idea? He got the idea from 1951 because he never was at peace of, with that. He understood that he most probably was not the person 
uh, who was named in the will. And even if there was no will, let's say that the will is a figment of imagination of a uh, of a of a uh, of a suitor like Barry Garari who was rejected. Now let's say, but even if there wasn't will, I bet that the Rebbe understood that his personal behavior. And again, before anyone goes crazy, I'm not accusing him of. Uh, of um, going to nightclubs, and I'm not accusing him of, uh, I'm saying, you know, he was probably modern Orthodox, as Barry Garari said. My uncle was as religious then as I am now. <laughs> That's a great statement, which I'll never forget. You know, because, you know, Barry was observant. He did observe Shabbos, he ate kosher, he wore an arbor compass. Um, but, you know, there are things that he didn't do, not that Hasidim would do. So maybe the Rebbe understood that someone like the Rebbe, like himself with his behavior, maybe it would have been more appropriate in in, in the long, you know, to have the Rashad become the Lubavitcher Rebbe. A man who literally, except for a stay in Israel, never left his father-in-law's side. He never left his father-in-law's side. Wow. You know, uh, a son wouldn't have been as loyal to a father as the okay. Of the so let, let me ask you something before we sort of run out of water under the bridge. Um, is there anything else, but specifically since we were sort of talking about Rav Rifkin uh, as a follow-up to letters from the rabbits and sisters to Nacha, is there, is there anything else about Rav Rifkin specifically? I don't have anything to add. I think what 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 we what what the listener needs to do is connect dots. There, there, there are many dots in what we were talking about today. The first dot is the whole me Yehudi story of, of a man in New York City trying to dictate politics in Israel who was frustrated that no one would listen to him and then, you know, um, wanted to impose his will. And, that, and, and then he backed down because of money. That's an important number of dots. Then the next dot is the way he treated uh, Rabbi Rifkin, the way he treated the, the terror against Rabbi Rifkin. <clears throat> and all of that, I think, came to a climax in the bookcase with Barry Garari, where you had terror, where you had the same thing, never forget and never forgive, and where he would once again had a diktat that the books belong to me, or you know his uh, organization that he created, a city Chabad, and he wouldn't listen to any compromise. There was no no room for compromise. And so I think the important, the two important words are never forget, never forget, and never forgive. People have to listen to me, and if they don't listen to me, I don't forgive. Okay. And uh, on that note, thank you very much for your recollections, Reb Shalom Aleichem. Thank you for, thank you and, for uh, the question. To be continued.